Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Anyone growing up in the United States during the 1950s and 60s has memories of chasing trucks down the road as they doused the neighborhoods in a mosquito-killing fog. The story of that fog is part of the broader epic of the insecticide DDT, with a cast ranging from Dr. Seuss, the entire population of Naples, peregrine falcons, to a trendy shade of green. And welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Raven Forrest Ruscalzo, your host. This is episode Poison of the Past. Listener David Meyer asked, I used to play behind the mosquito fog trucks. What was in that stuff? In this sentiment, David is certainly not alone. I've heard stories from so many people who grew up in the post-war era of the U.S. Because his question is about the history of vector control, I won't be getting into any scientific papers today. It's hard for younger generations, like me, to wrap their brains around parents not only letting, but encouraging their kids to run through a fog of unknown chemicals that were specifically designed to kill or to understand how the U.S. government could claim the world's first synthetic pesticide was safe for humans after just three months of testing. So, let's talk DDT, in all its glory and all its shame. Roughly speaking, DDT kills by flipping the animal's nerve switch to the on position and locking it that way. Nerves need to be able to build up charge, so that they can send a signal to one another or to another tissue, like a muscle. Being stuck in this on position makes all of the muscles contract and twitch, and without the ability to charge back up, the nerves themselves quickly die. A solution of just 5% DDT kills most insects on contact. The epic of DDT starts back in 1873, when a chemistry student synthesized the compound. He didn't do much with it, and neither did anyone else, until 63 years later, when Swiss chemist Paul Hermann Müller rediscovered the compound and identified its impressive insect-killing properties. DDT is colorless 
and odorless. And because it can't be diluted in water, it won't wash off. It isn't broken down by UV light, heat, or exposure to the air. Under perfect conditions, it can kill insects for 12 years after it's applied to a surface. And most importantly, it doesn't contain heavy metals. Before the introduction of synthetics, most natural pesticides contained heavy metals, like arsenic and lead. One very popular insecticide during the time was a compound called Paris Green. It was originally developed as a fabric dye that produced a light emerald color. It was a wildly popular shade, used in everything from dresses to wallpaper. But it was also wildly toxic. In the 1890s, when a chemist connected the arsenic-laden green wallpaper with the deaths of a thousand Italian children, the popularity of the color was decimated. American farmers figured if it could kill children, it would probably kill the beetles eating their crops. And before they knew it, Paris Green was the first chemical insecticide to be widely used. Another common insecticide of the time especially for roaches, was high-concentration sodium fluoride. In 1942, an accident with a compound killed 47 in a matter of hours and made another 400 very sick when it was accidentally used instead of powdered milk to make scrambled eggs for the entire population of an Oregon State Hospital. In this climate, of regular and horrific heavy metal poisoning, a product that wouldn't result in accidental death within hours, like DDT, seemed miraculous. Before World War II, the U.S. government was getting much of its safe insect control supply from Japan. They were the top producer of a natural insect killer made from ground-up chrysanthemum flowers, called permethrin. When Japan entered the war, on the side of the Axis, it cut off the permethrin supply, just as it was needed the most. War means troops plagued by insects and disease for all sides. The Axis powers had a means of preventing that disease, but the Allies did not. The trouble they knew was coming bore out when the end of 1942 saw malaria killing five times as many U.S. troops as the Japanese forces. On the European front, it was typhus that was the problem. The disease was known for spreading rapidly in war conditions and was capable of infecting whole towns and even cities. Typhus is caused by a bacteria and is spread by body lice. So, Although it was a very different problem from malaria in the East, the remedy was the same, insecticides. For obvious reasons, the U.S. was desperate to find a new insecticide that was as good or better than pyrethrum, that was safe to dose the troops in, and could be produced inside the U.S., in October 1942, the Swiss company that had the patent for DDT sent samples to the U.S. government for consideration. USDA labs tested the samples and were immediately impressed. It was not only highly toxic to insects, it lasted longer than permethrin, even outdoors, and could be made using American supplies. 
tests on animals showed it was toxic enough to kill small mammals like rabbits and guinea pigs, but seemed to show no ill effects in primates. In the light of the thousands of deaths from typhus and malaria, the researchers made the call that the rewards of DDT outweighed the risks after just three months of testing. By the next year, 1943, DDT's maximum production was reached at 3 million pounds of DDT per month. In an effort to get everyone on board, the Department of War was printing anti-mosquito imagery on everything that they sent to the troops, from matchbooks to manuals. Before he was a children's book author as an officer in the army, Dr. Seuss created whimsical information pamphlets encouraging the troops to use DDT to prevent malaria. On the home front, government-produced propaganda, popular media, and insecticide advertisements all told civilians that the use of insecticides would help the U.S. win the war. Killing insects, apparently any insect, was killing the enemy. This was sometimes paired with threats that if garden pests weren't killed, the food supply might run out. What's disconcerting about this push is that while the war was ongoing, DDT, the insecticide that was comparatively safe, wasn't available to civilians. They were using those old poisons that contained heavy metals, like lead, mercury, cadmium, and arsenic with arsenic-based poisons being the most popular. In just one year, more than 51,000 tons were sold to the American public for use in their homes and gardens. As the military continued field testing of DDT, the results seemed to show no end to its wonders. It could kill bed bugs in a mattress for nine months, kill lice in uniforms even after multiple washings, and kill any mosquito landing on a wall treated with it for three months. The largest and most public test of DDT came in 1943, when the Naples typhus epidemic began. The Germans dynamited the water system as they retreated from the city, so the Italians couldn't wash their clothes creating a perfect breeding ground for body lice, which live in clothes and bedding rather than on the person, like head or pubic lice. Half of Naples was also homeless from the various bombing campaigns. So the crowded living quarters became highways for lice, moving from one person to the next, infecting people with typhus as they went. Time magazine reporters were there as the U.S. military came in and used DDT powder to de-louse 30,000 Neapolitans every day. Within a month, new cases of typhus were in sharp decline, and a few months after that, when the outbreak would normally have been at its peak, it was over, and thousands of Italian lives had been saved. Time's reporting on the American halting of the epidemic, was a powerful endorsement of the insecticide for the American public, and, indirectly, of its safety. As it came alongside images of babies and the elderly being doused and made no mention of any ill effects 
other than mild skin irritation. The story tied DDT to the U.S. military, American paternalism, and humanitarianism during a time when these ideals were at the forefront of many American minds. Research on the home front continued, too. Tests run by the National Institute of Health and the Food and Drug Administration on animals in 1943 and 44 showed that low exposure over time could cause the same health issues as one very large dose, doing damage as it goes. Still, with the immediate threat of horrible diseases like typhus and malaria, the government did not stop the shipments of DDT to the front. 1945 saw airplanes dousing entire Pacific islands in DDT, which set malaria rates plummeting. That summer, only 25 out of every thousand troops contracted the parasite. Despite plenty of warnings and scientific evidence to the contrary, popular magazines and newspapers claimed that DDT was harmless to warm-blooded animals and, with no long-term studies to lean on, claimed it was harmless to humans. These magazines made no distinction between invertebrates, lumping earthworms, insects, and other animals together as worthy of nothing but eradication. In August 1945, DDT was released for a clambering public. Despite the warnings of experts, in just five months, 33 million pounds of DDT were sold to the American public. The very thing that made DDT great for the war, the fact that it didn't break down or wash away, meant that it would be building up in farmers' fields year after year with totally unknown consequences. Multiple outlets compare DDT to the atomic bomb as a marvel of technology brought about by American genius. Today, with our awareness of the importance of insects in society and nature, this sounds more like the warning that it should have been rather than the advertisement that it was. It wasn't just being dispersed by municipal trucks, but also hand pumps for the home, bombs that would spew the spray, and even DDT-impregnated wallpaper decorated with Disney characters. The American desire to stop using heavy metal pesticides and the touting of DDT as a miracle and a war hero kept up the push for DDT and the development of even deadlier synthetic pesticides that were based on it. As malaria was still a killer in the American South, and at the time it was wrongly thought that houseflies transmitted polio, citizens had nothing to protect themselves or their children from bloodsuckers. It would still be more than 10 years before DEET would be released to the public. This is a good time to pause and mention that DEET and DDT while unfortunately having similar names and history of development by the U.S. military, are two very different compounds. DEET is a repellent. It doesn't kill insects. And it isn't harmful to people and breaks down in the environment relatively quickly. So, with nothing to protect their kids other than DDT, 
its price point, only 15 cents could get you a pound of DDT, and the government endorsement, the poor of the world especially embraced the compound. It represented for them the difference between a comfortable life and a life plagued by lice, mosquitoes, fleas, and roaches, plus the diseases they carried. Regulators and manufacturers did warn against overuse, but it was a pretty mixed message, as they also talked about how safe it was and how good it was at killing pests and how many lives it had saved. Growing numbers of dissenting voices were drowned out as Hermann Müller won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1948 for the discovery of DDT's insecticidal property. Pesticide companies played to the consumer's false sense of a bargain by increasing the percentage of DDT in their product. This increased the chances of collateral damage, like killing family pets, but didn't change its ability to kill insects any faster. After all, it's hard to improve on dead-on contact. Despite the disturbing news that DDT was detected in the milk supply, the 1950s saw the production of 100 million pounds of DDT per year, mostly used in agriculture. In 1951, malaria was eliminated in the U.S., thanks in large part to the trucks and planes dowsing neighborhoods in DDT. But that, in a way, contributed to its demise. With the eradication of malaria and the development of a polio vaccine just a couple years later, the threat that made DDT worth the risk died away. The stage was set for one of the biggest players in the DDT story. In 1962, a marine biologist and wildly popular author, Rachel Carson, published a book called Silent Spring. The title of the book referred to the silence produced after the indiscriminate spraying of insecticides killed both insects and songbirds, turning the sound of rural springtime into an eerie silence. The book would become a bestseller, introducing the public to the concept of bioaccumulation. After a long-lasting pesticide is sprayed on a field, it would soak into the soil, exposing the earthworms. The dying worms would be greedily gobbled up by birds like robins. Each worm was a dose of pesticide building up in the robin's body until the concentration in the bird was much higher than in any given worm these robins would in turn be eaten by something like a peregrine falcon. In this way, top predators like these would end up with surprisingly high concentrations of pesticide in their body. Not only did raptors like eagles, owls, falcons, and hawks die, but those who survived rarely produced eggs because of the DDT's effect on their bodies. When they did produce eggs, the shells would be so thin that they would break under the weight of the adults when they tried to incubate them. The use of DDT led directly to the extinction of peregrine falcons in much of their range in U.S. and Canada. Reports of DDT found in fish in the ocean 
caught miles away from any area sprayed, and in penguins in the Arctic, were sobering to both the public and regulators. It was easy for people to be horrified by the stories of fields full of dead birds, acres of chemically burned trees, and squirrels writhing in pain. It's harder to put into words the fear of the unknown. Little research was done to truly understand the health effects of DDT on people. The work that was done raised concerns that long-term buildup of DDT in fat cells could cause health problems down the road. DDT's reputation started to take hit after hit, and the public stopped seeing it as a hero and started seeing it as a health and environmental risk. Dr. William Huper from the National Cancer Institute published evidence that DDT caused tumors and other types of cancer. The wildly popular actress, Jane Mansfield, was killed in a horrific car accident, caused by a fog truck obscuring her driver's view. These public concerns about the chemical made the U.S. recalculate the cost of using DDT compared to its benefits, and the cost seemed just too high. When the U.S. government created the Environmental Protection Agency, to regulate toxic pollutants in 1970, DDT was its first target, and it was banned in 1972. Many years later, in 2004, DDT and its more toxic sister chemicals, Aldrin and Deirdrin, were made illegal in 152 countries. As of 2017, India and China were the only countries still using it for anything outside of malaria control. Tons of the compound are used in parts of Africa, where the death toll of malaria is just too high to not use such an effective tool, despite the long-term risks. Even so, because of the risks we are becoming increasingly aware of, mosquito control organizations are much more thoughtful about how they use it. No more DDT dust baths for babies. Although the publication of Silent Spring gets a lot of the credit, it wasn't just one thing that resulted in the banning of DDT. There were unpredictable results, like when Canadians sprayed Toronto's Algonquin Park. They killed off all of the budworms that were feeding on the walnut trees, but that also wiped out all of the ladybird beetles. With no beetles to eat them, the aphids, which aren't affected by DDT, had a field day in the trees, destroying almost all of their leaves. Fish, amphibians, other harmless or useful insects, and crayfish were all wiped out by the spraying. This story happened over and over. Another factor in the banning of DDT is that many of the insects that DDT was being used to combat were developing resistance to the chemical. During the time of DDT, people were using it on a large scale and were spraying year after year. Any of the insects that survived went on to breed and passed on their genes that gave them an edge on the spray. Gradually, it took more and more spray to kill these insects. Only a year after DDT's release to the public, 
resistance was found in flies, and it wasn't long before mosquitoes and farm pests followed suit. They now use many different types of insecticides in fog trucks to reduce the chance that resistance will build up in the mosquito population. While the trucks may look the same, the way they operate is very different. Now, only areas with disease-infected mosquitoes are targeted, reducing the risk of exposure to people and the environment. If you want to hear more about modern fog trucks, I highly recommend that you take a listen to episode 37 to hear my interview with Sam Steins, a mosquito control expert down in Louisiana. I don't think that anybody with any credibility would claim that our current insect control methods are ideal. But we have learned a lot from the days of DDT. Mosquito control trucks are still with us. But gone are the days of children darting in and out of poisonous fog. Before we go, I want to thank you for sticking with the show through my sporadic publishing. After a year of cancer treatments, my father-in-law, Stephen McGrew, passed away. With the upheaval of that loss and COVID, I needed to prioritize other parts of my life. But I'm back, and in honor of Steve, who is a huge supporter of the show since the very beginning, our episodes will once again be coming out on a regular monthly basis. Our next episode is another dive into history. Listener Kate wanted to know more about medicinal leeches and their history. If you have a question about a tiny vampire, send it to us on Twitter at tinyvampirespod, on Facebook, or through the Contact Us section of our webpage. Also, please let your friends know that Tiny Vampires is now available in all three of the most spoken languages in the world. We work really hard to make this show fun, fascinating, and accessible, and would really appreciate you sharing it. Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for our intro and outro music. Until next time, take a minute to listen to the birds, and be grateful that we wised up before we killed them all. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.